We are in Mark chapter 4, and we are coming to a close on the parables. Uh, we spent some time here simply because uh, this is pretty much the only time Mark records a bunch of Jesus' teaching. After this, it just goes back into the, uh, and, and, and next, and next, and next. It gets back into the action after this. And so it's important, if, if Mark is going to write down these things, um, the, the little that he does, it's important to really take our time to understand what, what is going on. So last week, we had the parable of the, of the light, the basket, under the basket, or under the table, or on a pedestal. And then uh, he goes on from there to record two more parables about seeds. So what's going on in the structure here is very important to understand. He, he starts with the sower and the seeds, and then he has this private conversation with uh, those who want to understand what is going on, and he explains that parable, because that's the parable by which you understand all the other parables. Then he tells the parable of the light, and in the parable of the light, he's still speaking to just his small group. I also believe in the first of the two seed parables, he's still only speaking to his small group. And the reason for that is that it's the only thing in Mark, this parable uh, of, the, of this first of two parables, beginning at verse 26, that parable is, the, is the, the only thing in Mark that isn't found in one of the other Gospels. So this must have been some information that wasn't readily available to anybody who wasn't there. And so this is, this is how Mark does with this structure. He spe- right? It starts in chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a big crowd. Then he's talking to a small group. Then he's still talking to a small group, and you're a little confused. Is he talking to a big crowd again? No, no, no. He's still talking to a small group. And then, oh, now he's back to talking to a big crowd again. And so he, he messes with the structure of things because he's trying to make a, a central point. For chapter 4, verse 1 to 34, what is the center of it? What's at the very middle? The things that are before it and the things that come after are trying to explain what? Well, I would, I would say it's, it's the parable um, of, of the seeds, the parable of the hearers. Everything else in here is, is about that. So the parable last week we saw of the lamp is about the parable of the sower, of the hearers. These two, well, well, look at what he did here. Two more parables with seeds in them. I wonder what he's talking about. Well, he's talking about the parable with the sower, the parable of the hearers. He's still talking about that. I know that, that we talked about that three weeks ago. I know that it's like 20 verses previous to it, but, but he's still talking about the same thing. Understanding the parable of the hearers, the parable where he casts the seed and some receive it and some don't, is the centerpiece of the teaching here. Mark is like, I'm not going to do a lot of this, but I'm going to do it in this case. I'm going to tell you some of the things that Jesus actually said, some of the teaching he actually he gave, and, and I really want you to understand it. This whole section is about this parable. What kind of hearer is Jesus speaking to? Okay, I, I really want to drive that home. So I'm going to read the verses now. This is what we're going to be talking about. He goes from the parable of the light to these two parables about seeds. And he said, The kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now he's back in front of a big crowd. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And then Mark concludes the whole section. And listen what he says. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. As they were able to hear it. It's all about what kind of hearer is in front of Jesus. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. To those who came to him with a measure, he filled it. Those, to those who came with questions, he answered them and he gave them more. Right? That's what this whole section is about. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Mark, who um, took such care uh, under your direction to to write this account. We pray, Lord God, that as we look into deep um, and difficult things, 
I pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, and that we would uh, receive, Father, as the good soil, these words, and that they would go down into us, and that they would take root, and that they would grow up to a hundredfold. We thank you, Father God, for this day, for this time to be together in your house, and we pray, Lord God, that it would all be to your honor in the fame of your name. Amen. Now, it's fascinating when you have a giant stack of commentaries, um, the more academic ones, the more technical ones, right, when you get to a section and suddenly what they have to say about it shrinks down and they don't say much. They don't have much to say. Whereas the more pastoral ones, suddenly now what they have to say is like four times longer. <laughs> when, when that happens, if you're, if you're ever reading commentaries, this is a hint, that, that tells you something. Suddenly the academics have less to say and the pastors have more to say. <laughs> and vice versa. The really dangerous time is when everybody has a lot to say. Then you're going to, you got to go real small because <laughs> there's a ton. But this is a section where suddenly all the academic commentaries didn't have much to say. Whereas the pastoral ones went on and on and on. I thought, oh yeah, I do, I do that reading on Tuesday. I'll just knock this out. And, and it took me all day and then some on Wednesday just to follow up with all the, what the pastors had to say about this section. So what, what does that mean then? Think about what that implies. Followers of Christ can easily grow discouraged by the fact that many of the powers and established structures in this world seem to overshadow the emerging kingdom of God, right? We are told un, nearly unbelievable, unfathomable things in the word of God. And then we look out our window, we look at the nightly news, we see CNN, oh my goodness, we go on Facebook and Twitter, and we're like, uh, come on, <laughs> look at the kingdom of darkness, look at New York, right? What is going on in this country? What about the kingdom of God? And, and even in the greatest ages of the church, you go back and people always struggle with this. What they're told in the word of God and what they see with their eyes. And that's what these parables are about. What you see is not what's going on. I tell my kids all the time, this, if you're going to learn something from me, if you're going to leave my house, this is what I require of you in your homeschooling. <laughs> that you can read, Okay, math, okay, fine, you can do some math. But this is the principle by which I want you to go out and judge the world. There is how things appear, and then there are what is really happening. This is what it looks like, but this is what it really is. Okay, an election, stars. <laughs> In my opinion, everything is this way. It's what it looks like, and then what it really is. And that's what these parables are about. What do we see versus what is actually happening? The first parable of the kingdom we will look at today has no parallel in any of the other Gospels. This is a further explanation of the parable of the sower being at once an amplification of the law of spiritual growth. That's what a lot of um, theologians call this section. It's talking about the law of spiritual growth. And that idea is the fact that the seed goes into good soil and it produces, what, 60, 30, 100-fold more. The measure that you come with is the measure he'll fill. Spiritual growth, the law of spiritual growth. God gives you a little, right? And those who are, who are responsive to him, who have faith in him, who trust him, go out with that little bit and produce a great yield. Right? That is what the Christian life is all about. He gives you a talent. What do you do with the talent? He, get, he plants a seed. What grows up from the seed? Well, what kind of soil is it? Right? Everyone expects the Messiah to take Jerusalem suddenly and violently, not on a slow rolling tidal wave of popular approval. Right? What everyone is expecting is a Messiah who straps on the golden armor and gets on his horse, his war horse or his chariot, and just rides in and takes Jerusalem by storm. The last thing they're expecting is this nobody wandering around out in the hills, out on the edges of the kingdom, preaching, teaching, and, 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 and having this following that looks like a bunch of rabble. Right? I mean, if, if, if you could go back in time, you see Napoleon's army come marching by and they look beautiful in their uniforms, their guns. And then behind every army that's ever existed is this other group of people, the camp followers, right? The peddlers and the whores and the cooks and the people trying to make money off the army. And, and, and what all the Jews are expecting is Napoleon's army to come walking by, but what actually comes walking by is the camp following. Right? So imagine if you look out your window, you heard Napoleon's army walk by, and you missed that part, you look out, and you just see the rabble. You're like, that looks like a bunch of whores and peddlers, publicans. What are you talking about? Right? That's what the army of God at this point actually looks like. 
the rabble that follows the professional army around. There is an organic development to Jesus' ministry in which he goes town to town on the edge of Israel, growing his following steadily until large crowds greet him at Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. By the time he gets to the triumphal entry, there are people from all over the place coming there who believe in him. And that happens very slowly. It takes three years from when he starts to when he accomplishes his task. And even then, what does it look like? It looks like a big, right, a big hodgepodge camp following. Jesus' work was to sow. And only after a certain lapse of time will there be the gathering of the harvest. What is a struggle for every believer in every age is the lapse between the sowing of God's word and the fulfillment of God's word. This is what he said he was going to do. Time goes on, time goes on, time goes on. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't see it fulfilled. But he says it, and it's going to happen, and the time in between is what gives us all heartburn and despair. (laughs) What is going on in this in-between portion? The period between sowing and harvest, however, is not insignificant, for in that period is when the real something happens. I I love this about Jesus. He does it, right? I go back to it. If, if all he had to do was die, Herod would have just killed him with all the other babies, and we would be, that's it, the gospel's three chapters. But what is all that stuff in between? Between the cradle and the cross, what is all that stuff in between? It, it, that's where the real stuff is going on. And it's just like in your life. It's just like in your life. You get up in the morning, and you're like, nothing really great happens. It's all slow going. I drink my coffee. I go to work. I kiss the babies. And life just is like, I'm always telling the kids the same things. I go, and it's always the work is the same thing. We go to church. He's not that much further. He's only a few verses along. When is this thing going to pick up? Right? When are we going to get somewhere? So far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been sowing seeds throughout Galilee and will continue until Jerusalem. The harvest comes at Pentecost. And what kind of harvest is that? (laughs) These people are looking at him now at this point in chapter 4, Wondering what is going on with this. Now imagine if you could just go a little bit further in, in time and, and you go and you see Pentecost and you go back and you're like, hey guys, you just it's like it's a couple of years away. You're not gonna believe what's gonna happen. Right? And and that's within the lifetime of the people who are hearing the gospel. So in our own lifetime, it's the same thing. You don't have to wait that long before what God is doing is revealed to be quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. But that's not how it feels, right? Sitting in your car in traffic with the the screwed up Starbucks drink that they just can never quite get right, you're just like, man, what is going on, Jesus? (laughs) I don't know how many times that's happened to me. I said Splenda. No, I'm kidding. Now, just like Jesus in the gospel, where it's going along, it's very small, it's very subtle, to this big end, this is exactly what happens in church history. It's exactly what happens in human history. It's exactly what happens in the history of every person. The church is planted as a seed, a small remnant of Israel, and it outgrows the region. It spreads beyond the eastern province and so on. The small and weak church grows to become the religion of the entire Roman Empire, and then it spreads its borders, north and east, And if you know anything about history, this is what I love, the the Visigoths and whatnot, the barbarians come down and conquer Rome and are then actually conquered by the gospel. Right? The conquerors are in fact conquered by the gospel that's in Rome. This is what happened in human history. Right? And I I remember sitting there being converted and I'm just one small person. I'm like, what what good is going to come of this? Right? Nothing good ever came out of Renton. Okay? Nothing. Maybe a Boeing plane came out of Renton. They're okay. But now I've got a wife. I've got six kids. That's funny to me. I, I feel I know exactly what this is like. You start on the edges of the world as just yourself, and then before you know it, you've got eight people. And you're like, wow, this is a, quite a... I mean, from the one seed came a lot here. Right? And then, and then what happens? Then I go into my regular life, and I'm like, when is Jesus going to do something? Right? When's he going to get to work? There is a lot here to help us. Really, these parables, if you really want to get down to what it's about, it's about the sowing and the harvest. 
But, but there, you can actually extract some, some principles here, some hope from what is said so that we can go into our lives and that we can understand how sanctification actually works. The sanctification of a person, the sanctification of a church, the sanctification of a, of a county, a state, a nation. He, he covers things here in this first parable that are extremely helpful, full of hope. And this is the first one. There must be a sower. There must be a sower. If you want a field, there has to be a sower. The earth, as we all know, never brings forth corn by itself. Now, I understand that there are, in fact, right, everything had to come from somewhere. The, 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 the first guy who planted corn in the ground to make a field out of it didn't just produce the corn out of, out of thin air. But, but this is the difference, right? The earth all by itself is for gatherers. You are never going to turn a corner in, in Kentucky and come upon a perfect field of corn all by itself. Nature never produces anything that way. It's a, it's a wild, untamed land that man has to actually go in there and cultivate. Right? The seed that goes into the ground, earth will never produce 30, 60, 100 times more. It never will. Now, in the hands of man, right, the, the image bearer of God, that seed can produce 30, 60, 100 times more. If you want a crop, if you want a harvest, you have to have a sower, someone who has gone out and prepared soil and prepared rows and, and scatters the seed carefully. You will never find a cultivated field naturally. But what happens to any cultivated field if the sower leaves it alone? What happens? Right? Well, I, I mean, I planted the cornfield 10 years in a row, so I think it's good now. I'll just leave. You come back one year later, what's happened to the cornfield? You're like, whoa, I thought I took all the rocks out of this. Where did all these weeds come from? I don't understand. The corn should just be like doing what the corn does. The earth by itself never produces a cultivated field. The heart of man, in exactly the same way, will never turn itself to God. It will never repent. It will never believe. It will never, ever, ever obey. It is utterly barren of grace. It is entirely dead towards God and unable to give itself spiritual life. An orderly life is possible with the right kind of behavior. But man's heart is a wild wasteland. It's disordered and disheveled until God himself makes it a fertile field. So every heart is like the natural earth, wild, disheveled, crazy, (laughs) dead. It requires someone to come and cultivate it. It requires a sower. Christ must break it up by his spirit and give it a new nature. He must scatter over it by the hand of his laboring body, his, its teachers, its members, the good seed of the word. That is what's required in a heart to make it, to cultivate it and make it fruitful. Grace in the heart of man is a mystery. It is a new pr- principle within that comes from without. Sent down from heaven and implanted in his soul that grows firmer, wider, deeper. That's what grace does. Grace is just like a seed. It's very small when it first comes. But what happens over time? It gets wider. It gets deeper. Left to himself, man, no man living, would ever, ever, ever seek God. And yet in communicating grace, God ordinarily works by means. He has to have a sower. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You have to have a sower. If your heart is deaf and hardened, overcluttered, or any other way bereft of God's seed from regular reading and teaching of the word of God, then you will always and forever be a barren field. And if you let this, right, and and, and just like my analogy earlier, okay, well, God's been working in this field for 10 years now. I think it's good. I I don't have to keep at it. The seeds are just going to do their thing now. No. <laughs> Your heart is, has got to be plowed and seeded more regularly than any cornfield that has ever existed. It's not seasonal. It's like daily. Daily. You need the seed. You need the sower. Further, from this parable, we learn that there is much that is beyond man's comprehension and control in this process. The wisest farmer on earth can never explain all that takes place in a grain of wheat. 
Now, I have a lot of uncles, they're all farmers. If I walk out to their field, their cornfield, say, okay, well, well, which seed is this stock? Right? You grab onto a stock, you shake it. Well, which seed in your bag was this one? Do you know? Well, do you know how many seeds you scattered in this, this like, 10-foot area right here? No, I, you have no idea. Well, which ones came up? Right? What would my uncle say? Okay, city boy, let's go back and have some fried chicken. I don't know what you're talking about, right? We just scatter the seed. We do what we're supposed to do. And what comes up, comes up. That, that's how it works, is what my uncle would tell me. Thank goodness I never actually had this conversation with him. I would sound like an idiot. But, but this is a lesson for us. Any farmer knows the broad fact that unless he puts in, in, the seed into the land, covers it up, there will not be an ear of corn in the time of harvest. He understands the sowing part. That's me. I got to go out there and I got to sow it. But he cannot command the prosperity of each grain. He cannot explain why some grains come up and others die. He doesn't go out there every morning and be like, okay, little grain, right, little seed. It's time, buddy. You right there. I chose you. It's not, it's never how it works. He cannot specify the hour or the minute when life shall begin to show itself. He cannot define what that life is. Okay, little seed, it's going to be you and you're going to be seven feet tall, and you're going to have 13 different corn stalks on you. Is that, is that how, that, no one farms that way, right? Man doesn't do this to his own heart. Man doesn't do this to his own heart. He doesn't do this to the seeds that God plants. These are matters he must leave alone. He sows his seed and leaves the growth to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Wait, wait, but, but you have to plant it, you have to water it. Uh, in, in the end, they're, really, they're neither here nor there. Yeah, I'm commanding you to do it. <laughs> but in the end, it's, you're neither here nor there. Only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's field. Wait, I, I thought they were the farmers. Well, no, you're, you're actually, the farmer is the field, right? You're out working in God's back 40. He's working on you while you're working on the field. Think about that. Every time you reach in your bag and you think, okay, I, I am dominating this field. This is my field. I'm going to grab some seed. I'm going to scatter it. What's really going on is what's going on inside of you while you're doing that faithful work. Are, are you back in the farmhouse getting drunk or are you out working in the field? Are you working in the field according to what's wise and good? Are you planting when you're supposed to plant, right? Watering when you're supposed to water. Are you doing those things, right? As you're doing them or not doing them, you're the field getting worked on. You're the field getting worked on. We cannot explain in some cases why people with every advantage growing up in a Christian home, with Christian education, with, with everything that, that, that is required, end up going astray. In, in like manner, I know people, and they tell me their testimony, and I can't believe they're Christians. I'm like, how did you make it through? How, you came, it seems like you came, came into the kingdom on so little evidence, first off. And secondly, given what's happened to you, how would you, I mean... You tell, you explain to me the doctrine of, of, of whether God is, controls evil or not, because you seem to have experienced a great deal of it and you seem to like him, right? I, I, I'm not, I don't want to minister to you at this moment. I want you to minister to me. Have you ever met Christians like that? You're like, how in the world did you make it? Whereas this person over here, you're like, how did you not make it? What is going on? We know not how. We get up, we go to work, we lie down. We get up, we go to work, and, and something is going on, right? I, I remember this. When I worked for the city, I had, we plant all this grass seed, and it's dirt. And every day I got to go out there and water, and every day I got to go out there and water, and I'm like, man, this is, this is crazy. It's just dirt every day. But no, they're like, no, trust us, trust us. You know, and you water it, and you water it, and you water it, and then one day you come and it's grass. And you're like, how did that even happen? How did that even happen? Something is going on. Something is going on. But we, it's not up to us. Right? The harvest isn't up to us. Getting up and, and putting our hand to the plow 
right? He said, the farmer gets up night and day. Get up night and day and do your work. What comes of it is up to God. It isn't up to you to save your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your coworker, your brother. It's God's prerogative. What is required of you is faithfully sowing seeds. Consistency and obedience on your part is what you are called to do. God alone changes the hearts of men or leaves them fallow. You're like, well, well, that's depressing. What's, I mean, why do I even get up and work? Well, what is, see, this is, what does he promise? The soil that receives the seed will produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's what this is about. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the one who says the harvest is in my hands and it's going to be bigger than anything you can imagine, do you trust him? No, you want to, no, 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 no. I want, let me talk to the seeds. Let me go out into the field and talk to them, okay? They need to know how high to get. They need to know how much yield to produce. They need to know which, none of them can die. We need all of them to come up out of the ground. All of them. And that, Jesus, no. Do your work and leave the rest to me. Do your work and leave the rest to me. Life manifests itself gradually. We despise the day of small things. We, we hate the day of small things, right? It's like I was saying. I, what I wanted to do is like, why didn't we just buy the sod and roll sod out on this grass? They're like, no, it's cheaper, it's better if we plant the seeds ourselves. I was like, but look at how much work this is. Right? I, we got to go out here, we got to put dirt in the ground, and then we got to put the grass seed in it, and then I got to come out here every day in the, hot, in the heat of the sun and water this thing. I'm like, couldn't we just get the, the grass, right? They have these places you go, and it's just the sod's done. All you got to do is come, and you roll it out like a carpet. And that's what we want. We're like, okay, right? God, you can make wa- water into wine. You can take a loaf of bread and some fish and feed 5,000 people. What, what, what is all this work about? It's like Covey was saying this morning. Just feed us and let us go on vacation, right? I thought that's what becoming a Christian was all about, is I don't have to do stuff anymore. I I love this we we despise the day of small beginnings we see the faith of other people we love to judge it right we we, like what our our own pet doctrines they don't hold to them think of it Seventh-day Adventists Pentecostals right think of all the jokes that we make about them I I, I was told rebuked one time because I I was having this conversation with someone in my cage stage I don't have this view anymore, but I was lamenting of the fact that my parents were Baptists. (laughs) And this guy was like, dude, your parents are Christians. Stop talking. Duly noted. Duly noted, right? When we see faith in people, we despise small things. Children, those who are young in the faith. And what we do is we come with doubt and we, and we, we almost put out the flames, Right? How, what do you? Come on. What do you mean you don't you, you don't know where Romans is in your Bible? I remember that. I, I remember even that. There, I've made so many mistakes. I was at a Bible study and there was this young woman next to me. And she didn't know w- w- if Romans was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I didn't at all give thanks to the fact the girl owns a Bible. Right? Well, at least she's got it. She just needs someone to tell her where to turn. We despise the day of small things. Let us not. Let us not. Ecclesiastes 9.4 says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Right? A living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, I mean, even in death, the lion looks more majestic than the dog. Right? Look at the dog smelling its own poop. Right? Look at a dog. Dogs are just disgusting, filthy animals. I'm sorry for you who are dog lovers. But I'm like, are you sure a dead lion isn't better? Like the carpet? It's nice. But a living dog is better than a dead lion. Because any amount of life is better than none. Well, what, well, well, but they do contemporary music at that church. Yeah, <laughs> worshiping Jesus. So get over yourself, right? Yeah, it looks goofy from the outside. But God sees the heart. He knows what's going on. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise small faith. Now, this one I'm going to go over pass by quickly, but there is no harvest until, it, right, this, this parable, this is the last thing from this parable before we move on to the end. There is no harvest unless it's ripe. No one, no one 
ever is taken out of this world with work that is unfinished. No one. Not the stillborn baby, not the person taken midstream of life, not the elderly servant. Right? I, I read about people in history and I think, man, the guy had a heart, massive heart attack when he was 50 and he died. Do you know what he would have been able to accomplish? And Jesus would be like, no, he did everything I needed him to do. The stillborn baby is the same. They accomplish the work. Welcome, good, and faithful servant. No one is taken out of this world with work unfinished. God's sickle is sharp, it is quick, it is painful, like a scalpel, but never was a scalpel held by so skilled and loving a hand, and its timing is always perfect. No one leaves this world with work unfinished. The other good news is, until you reach the hour in which God appointed for you to die, you are, in fact, invincible. Congratulations, you're a superhero. Nothing takes anyone out of this world that isn't appointed by, to the very second by God. And until that day, nothing can stop you. Nothing. Now, we are called to die. We are called to put the seed into the ground. What happens to every seed that's ever planted that turns into a, a plant? You cannot dig down where the plant is and find the seed whole and perfect. Do you know what you will find? Nothing where the seed was, except the roots of a plant. We are called to plant the seeds in the ground. Jesus says, come, right? Now, this is a re- like sort of a mixing metaphors here, but this is important. He says, come and plant yourself in my field. And whatever dies in this field is going to come up and it's going to be 30, 60, or 100 times greater than what went into the ground and died. Well, you know, I I don't know, God. I like this thing that I'm holding on to a lot. I like myself a lot. And I don't want to lay that down in the ground. And he says, no, 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 this this is a magic field because it's my field. And whatever comes and dies by being planted here will grow up to be something that you can hardly imagine. I love C.S. Lewis's point. Everyone sitting here is, is becoming something, either something in the end that if we saw it now, we would want to worship it, <laughs> or something so horrible that it, it would be worse than the worst nightmare. Because you're all going to one location in the end. You're, you're, you're becoming, right, something like an angel or something like a demon. And the everyday choices to, to lay yourself in the ground in God's field, right? This is my mom always would see a graveyard and call it, call it a garden. She would say, oh, there's another garden. Because what is that going to look like on Resurrection Day? Right? I mean, if you've ever seen them, right? They're commonly called gardens of stone. My mom left that part out because that's depressing. That's how the world sees it. Look at that garden of stone. No, but it's the Lord's field. And what's planted there comes up. Now, people, throughout Jesus' ministry in Galilee, it doesn't look like the sort of kingdom of God movement that people were expecting. It was, in fact, the seed time for God's long-promised and long-awaited harvest. People wouldn't be able to see how God's promised plant would grow from this seed, but grow it would and harvest would come. Let it be a settled principle in our religion never to despise the day of small things, to always trust the Lord, to always lay the seed in the ground. If you put it in his field, it's going to come up something greater. Now, verse 29 says, has a clear allusion to Joel 4.13 in the phrase, puts in the sickle. And this is a reference which seems to allude to the eschatological harvest, the eschatological harvest, the one at the very end. There's a lot of ways you can take these parables. One of them is sort of immediate, right? If I plant something in the ground now, if I lay my life down now, right, I will get life now. But there's also a sense in which the things that we lay into the ground can lay there quiet and cold, silent, for a long time until the very end. And you're like, okay, whoa, no, 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 no. This is like what you were saying before. I don't want that. I want immediate, baby. I want to put the coin in the vending machine. I want the Snickers bar now. I don't want to wait. 
I, I want to be able to put it in the field and get 60 times back right now, like, a, like an ATM machine, right? I just take one little plastic card, I stick it in there, and watch the hundreds come pouring out. That's what we want. We, we look at the field and we say, okay, well, when is it going to come back to me? And that's what you get, silence. That's why we have the verses read for us that we had today. It, it's it's got to die if you want it resurrected. The promise is that it's going to be resurrected. That's it. And and people hear that and they say, oh, well, who can live with this? This is too much. And they go away. People say, okay, okay. Oof, ouch. Tell me more. Tell me more about this day. <laughs> and that's the rub. Right? That's what we want to hear more of. Because when we keep our eyes focused on that, on the harvest that he himself is bringing, then we're able to get up every morning and do the work. Because it's vanity otherwise. Ecclesiastes is true. When you just go about it, it's like, what, what is the point of weeding this garden? What is the point of watering this grass? What is the point, right, of dying and repenting of all these tiny little things? It's just so overwhelming. Yes, but think of the end. The end. Well, how do I, how do I know that's going to happen? Well, what was the first fruits? He's promised 30, 60, and 100 more. What were the first fruits of the harvest? Jesus Christ. Let's talk about mustard seeds for a moment. I, I know people who literally, this parable is the thing that, that led to their unbelief. This was, this was the last turn in the key that, that, that just led them out of the Christian faith altogether because he says it's the smallest seed. Well, we know now that actually it's not the smallest seed. Oh, well, then Jesus is a liar, and everything he says is hogwash, so I'm out of here. Man, Jesus, get a, you know, get a Paris, get one of those little science things. What are they called? Magnoscopes. See, I don't even, I don't do science. Magnifying glass. Telescope. Telescope. Jared back there is having fun. You think I'm just going to repeat anything you shout out? It's true. There are people who boldly say, listen, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about because if he knew everything, he would know it's not actually the smallest seed. Well, <laughs> it's like, where do you start with that? And on one level, though, you get it. Some, so, so what was going on in that guy's life to where that was the thing that got him to leave? Now, right, we all laugh and we ought to. On another reason, we should sweat a little bit because sometimes we're such bad hearers for so long, that's all it takes you hear something like this and you think, I'm done with this because it's nonsense. And his bad ears at this particular story was the result of bad ears for a long time. There was a ton of not listening before he heard this and said, I have had enough. And so I'm going to go back to what the point of all of this is. He says hard things. He says things that challenge us just like this. He is the God of the universe. We now have modern science. He says it's the smallest seed. It's not actually the smallest seed. Now, what kind of hearer are you? Do we want to look into that? Or do we want to say, nah, okay, I got you. This guy's a total nincompoop. And I'm out of here. There's two other times he mentions mustard seeds. In the Hebraic language, they had a classifications of things. And, and what, they would use, what they would do is use one right, to represent the whole group. Generalizations in Hebrew is like a, a thing. We don't like it now. We don't like generalizations now because we're, right, social justice is like a, the idol of the age. What, what do you mean black people? What do you say it like that? Like it's all of them. You can't say things like that. You can't say women are like this. What are you doing with generalizations? Well, yeah, women are the weaker vessel, right? And, and if I was anybody and the FBI heard me say that, they would probably come by my house. I'm not kidding. Doug Wilson, 
posted an article on his blog uh, uh, quoting someone who said we should burn all the public schools down, right? And it was a rhetorical point, and the FBI came and actually had interviewed him, right? That's the day that we're living in. We don't like generalizations. They would say, okay, there's a classification of big seeds, medium-sized seeds, and small seeds, and we're going to use the mustard seed to sort of represent all of them. In that classification, it's not the smallest, but it represents all of the small ones. And so he uses a phrase, not only does he know that it's not actually the smallest seed, right? Because wherever the smallest seeds were in the world when he said it, he's keeping them alive. He's like, I know where the, all the tiniest seeds are now, and I, I know where all the tiniest seeds are going to be 100,000 years from now. So don't come at me with that. But you know what Jews like to talk about when they talk about small things that you despise? Is they use this reference to mustard seeds. And so I'm trying to communicate to people something that they're going to understand, and so I'm going to use mustard seed. Now, that might cause a whole bunch of people a thousand years from now, all kinds of heartburn, because it's not technically the small seed. But hey, you know what? You either hear the parable and you come closer, or you hear the parable and you go away. So it's still working exactly like it's supposed to. Now, there's a lot about the mustard seed that we... I'm, 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 I'm getting long here. So there's just a few more things about the mustard seed. Because here, this is one of those things where I think I know all about the mustard seed and the mustard bush. In Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets, they talk about God planting like a sower. And, and this cedar tree that is just, right, it's huge and, and thick and big and brawny and strong. And that's what comes up from God, from God planting a seed. Well, Jesus knows that. He knows that. But, but the people all around him have grandiose plans that he is going to disappoint. And so he, he says, right, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, everyone's expecting me to say a cedar tree. But I'm going to make this point really clear. It starts really small and grows big. Now, if you take, right, we, I don't know if you plant a mustard seed around here. It doesn't get big. But in their climate, it gets huge compared to the, how tiny the seed is. It's unbelievable how big it gets. So he's making this point. He's also making the point that you're expecting me to say cedar, but I'm not going to say cedar. I'm going to say mustard because it's actually a weed. It's a weed. If, once you plant mustard seed, people hated it because once you plant it, you can't get rid of it. Now, I, you're like, mustard? I thought we all love mustard. Well, we do all love mustard. It's the same thing with mint. Have you ever, I, my wife is not allowed to grow mint anywhere in my yard because it took me two years to eradicate it after she planted it by my front door. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I like mint juleps fine, right? I, I like the mint jelly that she puts on the lamb. It's fantastic. But this stuff goes everywhere. Like the grass doesn't stop it. The bushes don't stop it. This is what a mustard seed is like. It's like a weed. It's like a weed. And the people who are proud are like, no, no, cedar trees, cedar trees. Jesus, haven't you read the Old Testament? The Messiah is going to come and plant beautiful cedar trees. No, no, no. He's going to plant a weed. And everyone around was like, this guy is insane. He must have a demon. And they go away. Whereas the first readers of Mark, hiding in the catacombs, uh, yeah, yeah, we're a weed, baby. Stomp on us all day long, and here we are. We're not going anywhere. Right? Jesus is planting a kingdom that is like a weed that you cannot eradicate. How did that go for the Romans? I've seen Christians lately. Has anyone seen a Roman? Right? I've seen pagans lately, but has anyone actually seen a Visigoth? It is like a weed. You can't stomp it out. Ask the Catholics. The Reformation period. How did that go? Well, let's, let's burn the weed. That's what we'll do. We'll burn it. Here we are. Here we are. And so these parables are not what we think they are. There is much more going on. And what he wants you to do is hear it and think, wait, isn't it a cedar tree? And so you come and you're like, hey, Jesus, isn't it a cedar tree? And he explains. He explains it to you. You know how I found this out? The church taught me. The church taught me this. Other pastors and theologians and men who lived not only in Augustine's time, but in our own day, because Pliny is, what, is the one 
who wrote all this stuff about mustard seed. And at the time, people were like, why are you talking about mustard seeds? And now people today are like, man, I am so glad he wrote that down because now we all know in that climate what a mustard seed does. And we've all figured out that's actually what Jesus was talking about. The humility of a mustard plant, <laughs> right? The annoying, obnoxious way that it takes over. That's the kingdom of God. Well, and how does it happen? How does it happen? Oh, we get up, we go to bed, we do our work in between, and we come outside and suddenly the seed that we planted in the front yard is, is grass now. Has this ever happened to you? I, I just saw a friend recently, I hadn't seen him in a while. And I thought to myself, man, he is looking old and fat, right? <laughs> and I go home, the next morning I'm looking in the mirror and I'm thinking, you handsome devil. <laughs> and then I thought, wait a minute. I bet he's at home thinking, man, Mike looks fat and old. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time. You think, wow, look at that, right? I have, bro- I have little brothers who are balding. And you're like, oof, look at that. But then actually I have this, I have this, this thing God provided. I have this scar right here. And you can see every year the hair gets further and further away from the scar. <laughs> Things happen gradually, don't they? Uh, you get, those of you who have kids, you know, you, you sit there and you're like, man, maturity? Anybody? Can we get a little? Can we get a little growing up here? You're talking about it. This, this just happened to us. We're talking about, man, I wish they would mature, the old, right? Especially the oldest one. While we were out on a date and he was at home babysitting. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. I, I mean, we go to bed, we get up, and somehow this is what happens. And you're like, when did it change? When did it change? Turn to Hebrews with me, chapter 11, verse 1. God lets you see from time to time that it does, doesn't it? Just like that. It's, like a, it's a window into your own heart. It's a window into sanctification. We kill ourselves. We kill ourselves in stress and all the anxiety. And it's like, when is it going to change? When is it going to get better? And we don't even notice it's 100 times better than it used to be. Because we're dealing with the problem right now. We're not stepping back and looking around and being like, man, when did everyone get so much more mature? When did that person's faith that was holding on by a string becomes now he's like one of the most active people in the whole church? Like, how did that happen? And then we move on quickly to the next anxiety. Chapter 11, verse 1 of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now I'm going to do this again because I can't believe this, but the word isn't assurance. (laughs) It's not assurance. It's more than that. It's substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now I'm going to go a step further. What does that word substance mean? Well, it's hypostasis is the word. It's being. It's ontological reality. Faith is the ontological reality, the being of things hoped for. He says there's going to be a harvest. And what your faith does is it says, okay, there is going to be a harvest. It grabs on to what he said because he said it. And you're like, yeah, just like D-Day was a day in history, just like today is a day in history, there is a reality in the future, and it's called the resurrection. He put, right, the seeds are in the ground. I came and I laid my life down, and I don't know what he's doing. I get up and I go to bed every day, the work in between. I don't know what he's doing. But your faith grabs onto things, and it actually, your faith makes it a reality. Something Calvin says that you stand on, that you plant in, that is firm ground. And so what we need to stop doing, when we hear these hard things, is go away. What we need to do is grab on. And our faith makes them reality. Believe the promises, and the promises are shown to be true. You grab onto it. You stand on the promises by faith. It doesn't matter what you see with your eyes now. You look out the window, you turn on CNN, right? You follow the president on Twitter, and you're like, what in the what is going on? 
You look in your own life and you're like, what about, I'm casting seeds everywhere and my arms are tired. There, right? Jesus is like, listen, there is going to be a harvest. Believe it. And when you believe it, what you'll find is not shaky ground, but firm ground. What you'll find is not a, right? a sand trap, but what you will find is good soil to plant your whole life in. And, 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 and there is a foundation there. That's what he's talking about. There is a foundation, and it's Jesus. And build on that. It's firm. When you believe it, when you believe it, and when you don't believe it, you're, 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 you dance around in the storm, picked up and thrown about. Nothing comes to fruition. Nothing is good. Nothing is going anywhere. And what you become, what, is an unbeliever, a functional unbeliever. Grab hold of the promises. Right? For, and it, it, it finishes the whole section. This is how he talks. He talks in parables. You're like, no, 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 no. Give me the straight skinny, Jesus. Just tell me, tell me what it is. Write it down so a five-year-old can understand it, because that's what I want. I want, I want that level of assurance. Nope. No, because it's about the one who's talking. The closer you get to him, the more you know him, the more clarity you have on all of these issues, and the more firmly you hold on to him, it doesn't matter what's going on around you, because you've got him. You've got the day of resurrection. You've got the day of justice. You've got the day where everything is going to be set right. You have the day where you, you, you will finally understand that everything that he was doing was perfect. And, and you look at that and you're like, okay, well, that's the reality behind what you actually see with your eyes. And this is the challenge to our faith. But Christ doesn't want you to go away hearing these things. He wants you to draw nearer because what he says is only understood when you're near the one who's speaking. And you're like, okay, he, he is good. He smells good. He feels good. He's strong. He's powerful. The ground that we're standing on, that he's standing on, is firm. And then you're like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Right? I can deal with stillborn children. I can, I can raise six. I can get old. I can plant now. I can sow with this ground, this firm ground here, this good soil here is where we plant things. Father God, we pray that you would help us to grab on to Christ by faith, that, that we would know what good soil is by being near him. We pray, Lord God, that we would hear the hard things, that we would, not only in the word of God, but in the providence of God, that we would hear the hard things and that we would draw nearer to Christ, not further away. I pray, Lord God, that as we struggle to understand these things, as we get up, and as we go to our work, and as we lay down, that we would trust you, that we would put our faith in you, that we would believe in you. And I pray, Lord God, that this message this morning, this worship service this morning, would not only praise your name, but would fill us with hope and faith and goodness and truth. Amen.